Hello, everybody. This is Ramir Keshwani, co-host of the Meet the Entrepreneur podcast with Artin Zahiri. This week, we will be interviewing Nazar Kadam, CEO and founder of EatApp. EatApp is the Middle East's number one reservation platform and online booking engine for restaurants. The platform powers reservations at the most renowned restaurants and hospitality brands. To date, EatApp has seated 10 million diners in 1,000 restaurants across the Middle East. So yeah, I guess I guess just kick things off. Uh, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about your career path. I saw that you went to to under your undergraduate school in San Francisco, where I'm from, and then you did a master's in global entrepreneurship at Babson, um, and then you started EatApp uh, after you had graduated from Babson. So maybe you want to tell us what was your career path, or what was your upbringing, and what kind of inspired you to start EDAP? Sure. Um, so originally from the Middle East, uh, born and raised in, uh, in Bahrain. It's a small island, just about a million people. Um, and yeah, I got, you know, got accepted in, in, you know, to, to move to the U.S. For, for undergrad. So I moved to San Francisco. This was back in 2006. Uh, stayed there until 2010 and I think that experience was a, a real pivotal part of my life because every other friend uh, that I had met at university uh, was dropping out uh, to join a startup or was you know a co-founder of a startup right so I, I immediately realized you could be a student you could be broke but you could you know have this audacious ambitious goal to build a, you know, a million dollar, a hundred million dollar, a billion dollar startup, right? And it was possible, like some of the friends managed to raise funding and, and uh, drop out of school and, and do that. So, you know, right from a, a very young age, I was like, huh, you know, anybody could do anything. Um, uh, but I felt like the, my time in San Francisco didn't really equip me with the, the pedigree to, to, to really, you know, understand what I was getting myself into. So I, you know, went online and look for the best school to try to teach me how to do that. And Babson was, you know, arguably the number one, uh, you know, university in entrepreneurship. So applied, got in, um, I did a program uh, for one year as a master's in global entrepreneurship. So the program took place in Babson and in France and in China. Actually, we got to live uh, four months in each country. Um, nice. And then sort of the lateral part of the program was, was in Babson. Graduated um, and then, decided thereafter to, you know, uh, and at the same time, I'd met, uh, you know, some of the recruiters from Google and I was going through a, a process of interviewing and going through the process at Google. And then I, you know, uh, decided, you know what, uh, I should just, uh, you know, jump in head first, uh, try to do this startup thing, like immediately out of, out of school. So I, I moved to France, actually. Um, at the time, France was offering visas for anybody who wanted to start a company sponsored by the, the university that I was in uh, or part of the program with Babson. So applied, got in, moved to France, spent about two years in France um, uh, to try to start a company, you know, uh, in, in a country that I didn't speak the language, so I didn't speak French, um, had a very limited network at the time. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, throwing yourself in the deep end uh, is, um, is quite fascinating what you could do to, to try to survive, you know? So it's like trying to learn as much as I can uh, while I was out there. Uh, the startup lasted about a year and eight months, failed, uh, obviously. 
um, but learned so much, right? Learned a lot about products, MVPs, uh, getting into incubators, uh, etc. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I moved back to Bahrain, where I was from, and you know, with that sort of Babson pedigree and having been through a startup for about two years, I started meeting sort of the you know the VC ecosystem here in the region, and then sort of you know ventured into EDAP. And by 2014, uh, 2015, you know, launched EDAP, um, and yeah. Been, been doing that ever since. Awesome, that's great. So, you've, you know, now you've lived uh, in the Middle East, in U.S. and in France. Uh, what would you say? Um, what's what, what would you say is your favorite of the three, or what makes each one, or what makes one of them more special? Um, it's a very good question. I think you know every uh, territory and geography in the world has its. Uh, Pros and, con pros and cons, sure. I'd say. Um, you know, the U.S. taught me a lot. Uh, taught me that uh, in the American dream, anything's possible. Um, you, know, you can start at a young age. Uh, and there's no ceiling, right? It's just uh, how, 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 how eager you are to be successful. Um, and and I, I'd say the U.S. really sort of ingrained that, in that in, throughout that experience. Um, I think the Middle East for me is home. Um, mm -hmm and, and is, is quite uh, rich in terms of resources, uh, access to capital, obviously due to, you know, oil and, and, and what, it, what that's caused to the region. I think, you know, young folks uh, who, who, you know, would like to venture into, into the startup space, you know, there is capital, right? You just need to be able to position yourself to, to, to present an idea and, and to raise funding, like capital is abundant. So I'd say that's mm -hmm. definitely a pro uh, for, for the region. Um, you know, Europe, I'd say um, is very tough. Like Europe, and, and that's a positive thing. Like um, it's a, you know, it's a very concentrated, um, you know, highly competitive uh, ecosystem. So, you know, you'd, you'd, um, you wouldn't make it if, if you weren't, working you know 10x harder than you know, your, your, your competitor or various other organizations so i think that's one thing that europe taught me is that you know you gotta work hard right you gotta wake up mm -hmm. you know commit the hours um and and there's light at the end of the tunnel if you if you do uh, end up working really hard and i guess that advantage carries over in multiple places but you know i, I felt like the competitive landscape in europe definitely you know helped uh, Help me sort of work a little harder, um, and that that's been very beneficial. Sort of after that, yeah. sure. Yeah, I uh, I'm I'm kind of curious to know. Uh, you were in the U.S. from 2006 to 2010. Um, any learnings from uh, being in the U.S. like through the through the 2008 crash, similar to the one that you know we're kind of in, in, encountering now? I'm curious to know. Yeah, you know, um, I I was a student, right? I was uh, that was. A junior year university, uh, 2008. I was like my second year of, of school. So, I, to be honest, I've had I had very little exposure into what was really going on. Um, the, you know, the main the main advantage is that you know, um, like things were a lot easier back then. I'd say, um, like my sister moved to San Francisco in 2014. Uh, you know, about what, eight years after I had moved there. And she had a very different experience, right? So when I was there, the rent was a lot cheaper. Uh, the city was a lot more accessible. Um, and, and especially during the 08 crash, like, um, 
the city was a lot easier to, to live in compared to maybe somebody who moved there, you know, mid 2014, 15, uh, the, the the landscape and just the economic uh, situation was, was a lot different. Um, so yeah, so I, 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 I wouldn't want to comment further because I, you know, I wasn't an entrepreneur then, right? I was just a student. I was a broke student in university. Uh, and it just being broke was easier during the crash because things were cheaper. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So um, Nezar, maybe tell us a bit, a bit more about EDAP now. Um, you know, it's a restaurant reservation platform, an online booking engine, but to our, you know, like to the common viewer or listener, how is your platform unique or different to competitors like an open table or a resi? Uh, sounds good. So, um, so one of the things you want to sort of, uh, you know, within our space, uh, it's a very region specific game, right? It's a marketplace business. Um, so you, you want to focus on a territory uh, you want to be able to acquire as much inventory in that territory you want to be able to offload that inventory into a marketplace uh, and the marketplace that has you know the best restaurants um, the best timings the most availability for the best tables um, ultimately is the winner right mm -hmm. so it's a very territory based game right so yeah. I'd say that we do not compete with open table because um, we, we are effectively the open table of the Middle East um, yes but then, uh, we did we did numerous things that, that I would say are different uh, and are doing things that are different now um, but yeah so, so sort of open tables sort of North America uh, in the UK Germany uh, Japan Australia and various other markets but mostly North America we, you know, our game is, is the region, right? So we service uh, the Middle East and North, the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. Um, having said that, one of the things that uh, we found sort of later down in the journey um, is um, that the software that we build for restaurants, so, so the model is, by the way, a two-sided uh, two model, right? On the one side, we have software and we sell this software into restaurants. Um, and that software helps restaurants manage customers, manage their tables, manage their staff, etc. But most importantly, it, it, it looks at the inventory of that restaurant, uh, i.e. the tables. Uh, and then it gives us the opportunity to operate the second business where we can sell those tables online, right? Uh, so we sell those tables online on, on our own website and our own apps, but also we power bookings for TripAdvisor, for Google, uh, for Resi here in the Middle East, American Express. Uh, and about 30 other partners uh, all sort of funneled into our software. So it's really a, a two-sided thing. But on, on the software end, uh, one of the things, one of the sort of findings we had is a lot of the, you know, operational requirements uh, for operators, um, you know, restaurant owners, you know, here in the Middle East are almost identical to ones that are based in London, based in New York, based in Sydney, uh, Tokyo, et cetera. Um, and so as we began to to continue to invest in our software locally, uh, we, we began to see a lot more adoption of our software globally. Um, mm -hmm. and, and actually, you know, we rank uh, number one, number two, or number three, depending on the geography and, um, and, and territory that you're in. And, and SEO, if you were to just Google, you know, restaurant reservation software, typically EDAP would appear, you know, result one, two, or three yeah. in almost every location globally. So. So we see a lot of demand for the software, inbound demand, about five, um, 500 restaurants a month almost uh, that register with us uh, to try the software. So 
Um, I guess that's one differentiator is that we decided to sort of move into the self-serve uh, type of model where, you know, restaurants would be able to find us online. They would be able to sign up. Um, it's plug and play, right? It's super easy to use. Um, and that's really helped us sort of ramp up beyond the region. Uh, so we now service, you know, restaurants in about 30 countries um, via this inbound model. So maybe that's one of the differentiators between us and the classic sort of open table model, which is very territory based. Right. And um, one of the, I was just looking at your website, one of the things you guys were um, advertising as a main differentiator is uh, you believe the restaurant should own the guest experience the, and own the customer. Can you uh, describe um, maybe what makes EDAP's privacy policy particularly special and important in, in that restaurants actually own the guest experience? Yeah, so this is part of a, a much larger theme, uh, which is, the, you know, the dynamics of the internet's changing, right? Because folks, you know, five to 10 years ago, um, operators, offline retail operators, had very little understanding of the internet, basically, and, and relied on marketplace businesses to help them acquire customers. Um, and and that's been predominantly the model since, you know, the dot-com boom, you know, all the way to just a couple of years ago, right? So the internet's had its 25 years um, of, of sort of educational ramp up for most operators. Um, and so marketplace businesses profited from that, right? Uh, so the likes of the food delivery players, OpenTable and several others, um, really owning the customer regardless of the channel online and then charging mm -hmm. a commission uh, to, to the operator. What we started to see recently is operators getting smarter Right, they're, they're a younger, so they, they come from a, a, lot, a lot more savvy sort of technological background. Um, they understand the internet. Uh, you know, so if tomorrow you wanted to start a business, uh, you would be very, you, you know, the way that you would start the, a restaurant business would be very different from, say, your, you know, your grandfather. Right, it's just it's, true. Uh, it's just time is, is evolving. Um, the ability for people to leverage the internet uh, for success. So. On the point that you asked, um, you know, we're trying to assist the modern restaurant. The modern restaurant is operated by predominantly, you know, younger, a younger generation, uh, you know, business operators that understand the internet and giving you the tools so that you could succeed online, right? So, so we see a lot, we see, we see the theme of direct to consumer. So B to B to C, uh, you know, outpacing B to B to C, right? Um, so, so if we can equip the restaurant with the tools so that you can become more successful online, uh, then we become an enabler business versus a marketplace business. It's very, very different models. Um, and if we become an enabler business, then you know, we can focus on servicing the restaurant and then the restaurant can focus on servicing the guest, which is one of the sort of underlying you know, hospitality foundations, right? Um, so, that, that's sort of the theme, right? So we partnered with Google so that we can give um, the restaurant the ability to acquire rest, uh, users on Google. We partnered with Resi and American Express to give them the ability for them to acquire users uh, through that. So, so we give you the ability to acquire uh, customers directly. It's sort of the direct to consumer, D to C, as they now refer to it. Um, and it's really sort of overpowering the sort of B to C model that is slowly getting weakened. Uh, the marketplace models is getting challenged more and more as, as we move forward. So we decided to take a proactive approach and, and really think about how can we help restaurants um, you know, connect directly with consumers um, and be successful.
Yeah. yeah another exactly. thing I want to ask about was on your website, you know, you mentioned also venturing into the content space. You know, EDAP has a pretty uh, robust blog, right, on their website. So can you talk a little bit about the impact that you've seen content marketing um, on, on your business and the growth of EDAP? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, content is, uh, you know, amongst various other factors, but content is king, right? Because content is how you are found uh, on the internet, right? So we, we partner with a lot of thought leaders uh, in the hospitality space um, to talk about subjects that matter the most to these operators, right? How does a restaurant succeed in a post-COVID world? How does a restaurant uh, design a menu? or menu mix or menu engineering. Um, lo a lot of this content is, is you know, high, high in popularity in terms of, uh, you know, search, uh, cer uh, you know, the, you know the, the, the amount of hospitality operators that are searching for the stuff online, you know, um, enabled us to sort of present EDAP as a thought leader. So, you know, here, here's other thought leaders. They're all sort of on the EDAP platform. This is what they're saying. And, and, and you know, the, the, the strategy is, you bring thought leaders to your site, time and you know, maybe one time you'll just read this blog, the second time you'll read another blog, we're like, hey, this is the same brand that I, that I you know, discovered before, what do they do, right? And then, and then you discover some of the services that we do and then you sign up, right? So uh, that's been predominantly the, the strategy is to really focus on inbound, right? You, you build the content, you become a thought leader, people come to you, they trust you, uh, and potentially may wanna do business with you, right? So that's, that's been the thinking behind um, that, that strategy. Yeah, excellent. Um, I also wanted to ask Nazar, uh, EDAP was now started, I think about five years ago, uh, if that's correct. Um, to this to this date, what would you say has been both, um, A, your biggest accomplishment that you guys are most proud of, and then B, what's been the biggest challenge or obstacle that you've had to face in that period? Um, it's a good question. Um, what are the things we're, we're most proud of? Um, you know, looking back, so, so we've had s several maybe key accomplishments, right? So we raised uh, just over $7 million. Uh, we service over a thousand uh, restaurants or hotel groups or food and beverage hospitality brands. So about a thousand customers in, in our portfolio. Um, uh, and, and so those, those are the results uh, that, we, that we're, we're proud of, but those have been driven you know, predominantly and, and solely due to the, to the team, right? The team uh, that, that is grinding uh, day in, day out. Um, and I owe it to those guys uh, that, have, you know, that have worked tirelessly throughout these past couple of years um, to really get us to where we are today. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, so, so I, you know, the, some of the, the, the accomplishments are, and, and are due to some sort of advice, right? So you need to hire the best people. Um, without the people, uh, you're gonna move a lot slower. Um, and two, you gotta have supportive you know, investors that are strategic uh, and are willing to back the business when the business needs it the most, right? And so I think we've been very fortunate uh, to, be, to be able to have investors that, that came in uh, you know, right when we needed the most to be able to support us to help us grow. Um, so I'd say those are sort of the achievements and why uh, we, we were able to get there. In terms of challenges, uh, man, there's so, so many, um, but, uh, but I guess, you know, the, the, maybe the most uh, difficult thing or maybe the challenge that, that, um, 
you know, that, that, that I can think of that surfaces to the top is, is really to try to balance, um, you know, focus, um, you know, to, to really think about focus for the business, right? Like it, it's a constantly an ever evolving thing, right? So at one stage in the business, you got to focus on your MVP, right? That's early, early days. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to get distracted in the early days and try to want to do more things or, or, or try to you know, deviate away from the plan, right? So just stay focused on that one metric that matters, right? your North Star metric um, and executing and delivering on time and then constantly evolving that focus um, is a very, very tricky thing and it's almost an art, right? What you focus on today is very different than what you focused on you know, one year ago, two years ago, three years ago. And the ability for you to constantly um, evolve the focus uh, you know, continuously move the, the needle uh, towards that sort of end goal based on where you stand in the business and your current stage. Um, I'd say that that's definitely, you know, probably one of the hardest things, right? Um, uh, and, and that's why businesses go bust, by the way. It's just, it's, it's not because the market wasn't there for the taking or, uh, you know, the competitive landscape was too extreme. Uh, those are certainly some of the things, or, or they may not have gotten funding. Definitely, those are some of the sort of repeat uh, reasons why, why businesses fail. But I really think it's due to focus, right? It's like you have limited resources, limited time, right? What is the single most important thing for you to achieve in order to maximize the probability for you to, to enter the next milestone or the next stage, right? Um, and being able to do that while running a business, while fundraising, while dealing with competitors and, and all the other crazy things that happen, um, you know, that's definitely a challenge. Um, and yeah, it continues to be a challenge. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, you mentioned <clears throat> something that's really relevant that running a business can be very distracting, right? Because of all the things that you have getting kind of thrown at you every day. Do you have any personal habits that you keep to kind of help yourself maintain that focus and uh, kind of like keep, uh, you know, have a positive impact on you while you're kind of running your business and growing it? Yeah, I mean, look, there's playbooks for this stuff. And, you know, we didn't reinvent the wheel, uh, but we religiously stuck to playbooks. Um, and, and I do playbooks for almost almost everything that I, I try to do. Um, but the playbook that we implemented at EDAP was the OKRs framework, right? Setting objectives and then the key results. Um, I would say we started that slightly later in, in our journey. Um, so it was a little more hacky and, and uh, you know, uh, messy uh, prior to that, but we now you know, commit religiously to OKRs, right? So we define company-wide objectives and, and results. Um, and then those are sort of waterfall down um, into the different departments and then the different uh, you know, stakeholders or employees in those departments. So at any time, you know, waking up every single day, like I am working on this one thing because that ultimately feeds into the company objective, right? Um, and, and, and we have, you know, we, we commit to the cadence of, of, of doing these OKRs, never missing those OKRs. Um, and, and, you know, we do monthly check-ins to ensure that the whole company is aligned on, on the one thing that we need to, we need to achieve, right? Um, and you can check out OKRs. Uh, There's a lot of content online on, on why they're useful. Um, and then, and then so, so on a personal note, though, so I'll, I'll know my OKRs, right, and, and what I'm responsible uh, of doing. And then what I'll do is, is like, is a thing I learned from engineering, um, which is sprint planning, right? So I have a weekly sprint that I plan every single 
so we start the week Sunday to Thursday, unlike the US and the Western world where it's Monday to Friday. So ours is Sunday to Thursday. So my Sunday morning, uh, you know, I'll wake up uh, a little earlier. Uh, I'll go to my you know, uh, desk station. Now we work from home about, you know, an hour earlier uh, uh, to, to be able to just take the time to really sprint plan, right? Uh, what, are, what are the single most important things I need to achieve this week? Um, I document them on a, on, on a software uh, called 15.5, uh, which has been phenomenal and highly recommended uh, for any entrepreneur or startup looking to implement OKRs and also sort of, uh, you know, employee sort of task planning for the week. Um, so yeah, so I do that. I sprint plan for the week. Uh, I, I document all the sort of results and, and tasks that I want to achieve for the week. Uh, and that, you know, 15.5 dashboards open all week. I have three monitors. One monitor is just my 15.5. So at all times, I ensure that I am keeping track of um, exactly the, 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 the tasks and objectives that I need to get done uh, throughout the week. Now, you ask me, like, you get distracted, right? At midweek, I receive a call from a shareholder. He asks for a report or um, that's not a good example. But, uh, you know, a big customer wants to churn or, you know, a lot of things do happen, right? Uh, scary things that happen. Um, and so, you know, I'll always leave a slice of my calendar open to be able to accommodate sort of unplanned things. Uh, and, and that'll be there in my weekly sort of sprint planning. Like I'll leave a, a little time to do that. Otherwise, if it's not critical, if the business is not going to die, if, if, you know, I don't address this, uh, then I, I'll always, um, you know, have a, um, you know, I'll write down the things that, uh, you know, um, I would want to accomplish. And, and then it'll just be rolled into the next week, right? So I'll just document them. And then when I do my sprint planning next week, I'll look at all the stuff that came up. I'll just plan them for the week uh, if, if they qualify to be, to be there. Um, the very, very important stuff. Like, you know, it's very easy to get distracted um, with, with a lot of things that are going on. Uh, you know, we found that OKRs and, and sprint planning, not just for engineering, right? Sprint, sprint planning for every other department too. Um, that really helps us uh, stay organized, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, definitely some good tips in there. Um, I was wondering, when I was looking at the, the reservation management space, I saw that kind of, there's a lot of different pricing models out there right now. Some, some companies have tiered pricing. Um, some guys just have one monthly, one monthly fee and then others do a commission based. Do you think um, in, the, in the future, do you think the industry will kind of find itself an industry standard where there's, there's one predominant pricing model shared throughout all the companies or you think it's going to continue to be different and based case by case by each company? Yeah, so that's a, it's a very good question. And, and, you know, I want to relate back to the uh, you know, discussion we had about the direct to consumer um, topic. So I think the commission heavy model that is being challenged aggressively. Uh, you have new players like Resi, um, you know, seven rooms, uh, talk, uh, you know, those are some of the sort of, you know, players that have been able to enter the, the U.S. market and, and, and begin to acquire market share away from OpenTable. Um, and so OpenTable then has revised their pricing model, uh, you know, what previously they used to charge, um, you know, for like the booking widget on the, on the restaurant's website, they used to charge about mm -hmm. 25 cents a cover for that. That's no longer happening. Um, uh, you know, and, and they've also reduced the per cover charge. So I think ultimately, if I think, you know, five to 10 years down the line, I think what you'll find is there'll be a price point for software 
Um, and that, you know, category, it'll be, you know, on the lower end for your, you know, casual dining restaurants um, and, 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 and significantly on the higher end for, you know, your, your, your mass, you know, mass market um, casual dining and then, and then more so for the fine dining space, right? So, uh, because the requirements of those businesses, you know, they require an enterprise grade software, some of them, you know, the, the single site restaurant requires robust analytics, um, you know, user roles and permissions, et cetera. It's stuff that you'll find in enterprise software. Typically. Um, so I think that price point's gonna continue to skew on the higher end. Um, and then on the lower end for the sort of casual restaurants, that's on the SaaS uh, model. And then on the sort of B2C model, the commission model, I do think the marketplace businesses will continue to exist. Um, you know, this whole kind of online shopping model, uh, shopping mall model, like I think will continue to exist because, you know, some consumers prefer to go to platforms like, you know, Open Table to discover restaurants and book, right? And, and restaurants will always seek more customers, right? So I think the commission model will work um, as long as the marketplace business does contribute incremental revenue to the restaurant, right? So if I was to disconnect from this one marketplace, have I lost customers? If yes, then I think those restaurants will subscribe uh, to the marketplace businesses to be able to yield incremental revenue. Um, I think uh, what, what's going to be challenged is sort of the direct-to-consumer, so the tools that are currently available, like the widgets uh, on, on Instagram, the, the reserve with Google um, you know, uh, page um, or, or functionality. Those types of technologies are going to just be free and part of the software. Um, I think I think that's what's going to happen in our space. Like direct to consumers, just going to be part of SaaS. And then if you have a marketplace business and you own the consumer, then you can start charging a commission um, for that. So, you know, I, I see that's and the space has been slowly moving there, um, you know, a lot faster on some other you know spaces like travel and uh, and food delivery. That's you know heavily being uh, challenged right now. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I think that's ultimately what's what's going to happen from a pricing standpoint. Thank you. Got it. Um, another thing I was wondering is I, uh, we talked about this, but EDAP, you know, the guys are constantly putting out new features and, you know, new tools, both for on the, on the diner side, on the restaurant side, and then both for the, the, the customer, the, the person uh, who's you know, using the app on the other side. Is there any, um, cool features or new technologies that you guys, um, are working on that you think is really going to put uh, EDAP over the top? Anything in particular that you want to share with us? Sure. Um, yeah, I, th I think, you know, so, so some of the stuff that you'll find on our website, um, you know, we're, we're definitely focused on the post COVID world. Uh, so we're mm -hmm. building a lot of tech around uh, contactless dining, you know, helping restaurants do direct to consumer for takeaway, uh, curbside pickup, delivery, et cetera. So, I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but there's definitely been one theme that's been really exciting in our space, and that's to introduce automation and, and AI actually in the restaurant space. Because one of the things that um, we, we found clearly been happening, a lot of the restaurants have been using SaaS, right? Now they've been using the tools, they've been, you know, uh, recording every single customer, every walk-in, every waitlist customer, every phone reservation, online reservation. And, and they do take the time to, you know, keep, keep, keep the CRM in good hygiene. Like they will tag customers, etc. 
The problem is, um, is that restaurants, uh, unlike startups, um, you know, we, we believe they fail to, to convert data, very valuable data into actionable insights and therefore revenue, right? So that they're accumulating this wealth of data, um, but they're failing to action that data and, 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 and experiment with the data to bring, bring customers through the door, right? So I think uh, the biggest theme for us is, we you know, spent the first five years, um, you know, working together with restaurants to be able to operate just like the rest, like to give them the tools so that we can truly understand their problems and to give them the tooling to become more successful. And now that's sort of changing, right? We're trying to help restaurants become more like Ida. Like we're, we're a startup and we're heavily data driven. Like most of our decisions come from data. Like we look at the data and this is why we decide to build a certain feature or why I decide to go after a certain customer, etc. right? So it's, it's now we're almost trying to ch change that mindset of the restaurants to help them go from data uh, to action, action that data and, and, um, uh, and, and, and generate more revenue. So sort of the, the announcement, it's not something we've, we've launched yet. Uh, it's definitely in, in, uh, in, in development internally at the moment, but it's introducing AI, right? So really to do this on behalf of the restaurants, right? So the restaurants are gonna use the software, the software is gonna say, hey, um, you know, I, I noticed that John um, has been to the restaurant multiple times, um, but then he stopped coming, right? He just, the guy stopped coming to the restaurant. They'll, they'll, we'll, we'll be able to flag that customer and be able to sort of initiate some drip funnels uh, and some messaging to try to bring back that customer to the restaurant. Some of the normal stuff app developers do and, and internet-based companies do, we're trying to bring that offline uh, to the restaurant world and to treat it really help them, uh, you know, leverage this data and the CRM that they have to be able to bring back customers. That's just one example. And, and we've been going even further down the funnel to really learn about behaviors. Like, you know, some restaurants are like, hey, can you tell us the customers that come to the restaurant one time and the customers that come to the restaurant multiple times, like what's the difference between those two? What causes a customer to come back? And so we start digging into the data and we realize that certain waiters in the restaurant result in better retention. Certain dishes in the restaurant, like if a customer comes to the restaurant for the first time and orders a Bloody Mary, they have a 30% higher chance of coming back to the, to the restaurant, right? Like, so we're introducing AI to be able to dig deep into the data, to be able to surface some actionable insights and then automate those insights, right? Um, and what I mean by automate, like we will automatically tag a booking and recommend that they order a Bloody Mary and make sure that the hostess communicates that to the waiter so that the waiter can, can, can recommend that to the customer. And then we will we'll be able to track that. Okay, did you know, an increase in sales in Bloody Marys result in an increase in retention, right? That type of stuff is super exciting. And like, we, we wanna be the first company in our space, in the world, to be able to introduce some of this AI stuff. Um, and to see if we can help restaurants you know, leverage this data to, to, to increase revenue. If we can help them increase revenue, I think we've, we're, we're doing a pretty good job. That. yeah that's awesome yeah that's some really, really cool and exciting stuff yeah, do you um you know in light of uh you know congrats on your recent raise um in light of this and this uh initiative that you're kind of working on in the background or, or kind of like developing is there a link there like do you plan on maybe allocating some funds for hires that could help you build out this uh this initiative or is it still um in kind of like the development phase before you guys uh fully fully commit to it 
Oh man, so if I was to tell you like our hiring pipeline and our hiring targets for the year sort of after the raise, uh, you know, we, we were pretty bullish on, on scaling the company. Um, hmm. you, know, you know, I think by, if you compare like uh, Q4 of 19 compared to Q4 of 20, we're supposed to almost double uh, the, the headcount internally. But then COVID happened, right? Uh, and so we went from you know full speed uh, on on the throttle to try to you know, grow the business, um, just immediately being on the front li- front line of COVID, right? We're in the hospitality space, right? So if there was one business uh, line or, or you know airlines being shut down, hotels being shut down, restaurants being shut down, meant that our revenue went from whatever it was in February to zero in April, right? Never have I imagined that. Um, that that would ever happen. Uh, so 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 we're, we're truly in crisis mode at the moment. Um, and also, unlike you know the U.S., you guys have furlough programs. Uh, you know, in Western Europe, you have um, you know uh, programs that that help uh, pay salaries. We don't have that here, right? So we've been able to we've been responsible to pay for our employees with zero revenue, right? So um, so it's it's the narrative has changed. Instead of thinking about hiring uh, resources. Uh, inter- you know, internally, we're like, we're, we're trying to try to protect as many jobs as we can. Um, and that's been obviously priority one. But then how could we enable, you know, the, the internal resources that we have to produce more, right? Um, and so, you know, this, this project, as an example, um, you know, is taking up resources uh, that typically would be busy doing other things. Um, so we sort of internalized and shifted resources to accommodate continuing you know, the, the cadence of developing great products um, while, while, you know, keeping headcount the same. Um, uh, yeah, I'm pretty proud that we didn't fire, uh, you know, a third of our company, unlike yeah. other companies, et cetera. We decided, yes. you know, all hands on deck, uh, we're all in this together, um, and, you know, we're going to make it through. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we should develop now and we should strengthen our product line so that by the end of the funnel, or the end of the tunnel, excuse me, once, once things sort of come back, we can come out of this stronger uh, with the tools and technology to, to be successful. Again. No, it's like, is there any like major lessons you've learned as uh, kind of like a founder and a CEO on the best way to manage um, or management skills, or maybe some like pillars of value and culture that you have emphasized to your, um, to your team during this time? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think, um, so first of all, you know, I've never been in this situation before ever um never have i uh, you know experienced explosive growth followed by a cliff-like uh decline in terms of uh in terms of revenue and transactions and signups etc um so this was all new to me uh so you know certainly i i you know t- took the time as early as i could to try to learn sort of best practices again playbooks right i mentioned this stuff a little early um, and, you know, some of the things that uh, really uh, you know, were important during, during this period was, um, you know, one of, one of our values is, you know, ownership, right, uh, at EDAP. So what, whatever product or project or, or task that, that, you, that you work on, you, you assume full ownership. And we try to empower everyone at EDAP during this time to, you know, uh, you know exponentially um, focus on the ownership component of, of you know. So we had like major VP hires that we were supposed to, you know, hire uh, now, considering, you know, COVID uh, wouldn't have happened. 
you know, and, and, and instead, uh, since we froze hiring, we sort of gave ownership of some of those roles and internalized and, and sort of shifted resources to do that. So giving people the ownership and trust that they could, they could take on bigger projects and do bigger things. I think that that's been definitely one of the uh, key takeaways and, 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 and seeing that people are capable, right, to be able to do those things. Um, and two, I think this is sort of a sort of generic uh, advice, but, um, you know, during times of crisis, I think the single most important thing is, is transparency, right? Um, what we used to have, you know, monthly check-ins across like all hands uh, check-ins. Um, and of course we have weekly meetings between different teams and one-on-ones, et cetera. Uh, we made it mandatory that we check in with everyone in the company once a week. So by the end of the week, uh, at like 4 p.m. On, on Thursdays, this is the last day of the week, with an all hands um, where, where we step in and every department uh, you know, steps in and talks about their key accomplishments of the week. And we give, obviously, we, we, you know, we uh, op open up the discussion to give you know, very high level updates on the industry, uh, on transactions, on restaurants, um, on how things are still normalizing or getting worse. Uh, so, so, so we've been very, very transparent since the beginning and we've you know committed to doing it every week it's been i don't know uh, 17 or 18 times now that, that we've done this uh, we've been in lockdown or you know, since early march uh, so mm. almost uh, you know three four months um but yeah and, and being transparent i think it also um you know reduces anxiety right people are like the world is burning like what the hell's going on and, and, and they get concerned right so the more transparent you are um, the more you expose um, and, and you trust that people will take this information and translate that into something uh, productive, um, you know, that, that's certainly uh, been, been very helpful. So I'd say maybe just two things, right? Transparency and then, and then ownership uh, and, and trust uh, have definitely been two, two things uh, that have been Absolutely. the theme, I guess, during COVID. Definitely great advice, for sure. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I, I have to ask you, I'm just curious. So um, I'm a first generation American. My parents immigrated from Iran. Uh, I always wondered, what is it like doing business in the Middle East? Is there, is, do you face any more or less challenges than when you were starting a business in France or if you were to start a business uh, in the US or elsewhere in the West? Hmm. For sure, right? 100%. Um, uh, it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the context of doing business is very different, right, um, in, in the Middle East. But I, I will also say that within the Middle East, it's very different in a place like Dubai compared to a place like Saudi Arabia or, mm -hmm. or Bahrain or Lebanon, right? Um, I'd say Dubai is probably the closest to what a sort of the Western business context looks like, just because decision makers here are from the US or, or the UK or, or various other geographies of the world, right? And so it's a very uh, multinational uh, dynamic sort of business landscape. Um, uh, so, so, so certainly in the UAE, uh, you know, you follow sort of best practices as, as you, you've been trained in Babson, that would definitely apply here in the UAE. Having said that, doing business in Saudi, very different, right? So then you'd have to sort of um, mold and, and adapt to sort of the Middle Eastern way of doing business. And that's a lot more relationship building, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot, lot it's, it's a lot friendlier. It's a very sensitive way of doing business um, uh, compared to the ruthless, you know, time sensitive, uh, 
context in the UAE, right? Like people here, you have a meeting, cut to the crap, cut the crap, get down to business. We only have this many hours. Uh, let's get through this. Um, Saudi, Bahrain, Lebanon, very different, right? It's a lot more relationship building. Uh, it's a lot more laid back. Uh, they do business with people they like. Um, um, and so it's, it's, it's a very important skill set to be able to adapt uh, accordingly, right? Uh, so we have investors from Saudi. We have investors from Silicon Valley, right? Like our discussions with, with, uh, with 500 startups are, are you know, the investor from Silicon Valley. Like that discussion is very, very different from our, you know, uh, VC investors in Saudi, right? Like almost, um, you know, uh, so certainly there's this context uh, to, to be learned uh, in the different places you do business. It's very fun too to you know, be part of that. Does that answer your question at all? Or? Yeah, you know, it does. Absolutely. I'm sure you've been exposed to, I guess, both uh, sides of the culture with the Western culture and the way it works there and then the Middle Eastern culture, which is much different. So uh, you've, you've seen it all for sure. <laughs> yeah, I also lived in China, right? I saw, the, I saw the, so the Asian part of it and I saw the European and then the Middle Eastern. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I'll say this, right? Like, I think the... the purchasing behavior, like the consumer behavior is changing very, very fast, right? And, 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 and faster in other geographies, but also it's changing here, right? And the, the fact that the internet today provides uh, democracy almost, right? Like I can find out any piece of information about any company, I can find out their pricing, I find, like all the stuff you, you talked about during this interview, right? As, as, as content um, producers, like there is democracy now because now it's an equal playing field. Like anyone else has access to the same data, right? And information. So um, I know the context is very different the way you do business, but ultimately, you know, the, the, the consumer behavior and the way that people begin to collect data and information is becoming democratized around the world. Um, mm -hmm. So, so people who want to do business with us in Saudi and the ones that want to do business with us in New York, uh, ultimately, you know, all check out our website, they know our features, they know our prices, et cetera. So, um, you know, it almost creates an equal playing field, um, you know, uh, and, and, that's, and that's happening to every business, I'd say. And if, and if a business isn't available, if their content's not available online, like there's a massive opportunity that they're not penetrating. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Um, Ramir, do you have any questions? I just have one more, so I'll, I'll give it to you if you have any others. Um, nothing off the top of my head. I think that, yeah. I, oh, um, no, yeah. I think I think uh, definitely answered a lot of the questions that I had. Great. Yeah, the last question I had, Nazar, is what do you do in, when you're not working on the business? What do you like to do in your free time and when you're away from work? Man, uh, let me think. So, I mean, I, I try to do uh, playbook stuff that, uh, that's, you know, uh, been, you know, sort of, uh, you know, best in class ways to keep your mind focused. So, you know, during my off hours, I will, uh, you know, work out as much as, much as I can. I try to do that uh, at least, you know, four to five times a week. Um, I'll read, um, I'll make sure I'm active, um, you know, I'll, I'll produce music or just, you know, a DJ, uh, you know, try to, try nice. to spark my cre creative uh, um, 
you know, uh, abilities. Um, I'm also involved in like a festival that we do here in the Middle East. Um, I've been a Burning Man. I don't know if you guys heard of Burning yeah, Man or not. I've uh, been a Burning Man now six years in a row. Unfortunately, it won't happen this year because it got canceled. Um, but try to, try to, you know, learn as much as I can, um, or try to bring as much as I can from that experience over to the region uh, through a sort of a creative festival that we do. So I, I spend a bit of time doing that. Um, yeah, so yeah, music festivals, uh, sports, water, water sports, uh, reading, you know, engaging with friends. Uh, yeah, that, that type of stuff. But I got to say, like, uh, you know, work is my life, right? And I, I think, like, I, I enjoy it, right? So, like, even on weekends, I'll, I'll take the time to start thinking about things. I'll, I'll go on walks mm. with colleagues to talk and brainstorm about ideas for work. Um, the minute that the sort of work is, been, once there's, like, a marriage of, like, your passion and, um, and, and what you do, I think that is where you're able to tap into this, like, deeper layer of productivity and success um and so you know as much as i do all these other things like eat app is my life right like that's what i do all the time i think about it i, I dream about it sometimes as freaky as that sounds uh, but but it's great because it's like what i want to do it's like my 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 passion right uh, so um so yeah so that's uh hopefully that answers your question Absolutely. Thank, yeah. thank you so much, Nizar. Again, we really appreciate the time. Uh, we'll let you go. We know it's getting late there. Um, but thank you again. We love learning more about the company and are really excited to see uh, you guys expand and grow. Uh, it's definitely an exciting story. Cheers. Thanks so much, guys. And I, yeah, I appreciate, you know, keeping the alum, alumni network active yeah. and, and reaching out. Really appreciate it. Take yeah. care, guys. And best of luck. Take it easy. Thank Take you. Care. Good night. Later. Bye.